Welcome back to the Enneagram Journey. Today I'm going to talk with Drew Moser, a dean and professor at Taylor University in Indiana. He's a three on Enneagram and the author of Ready or Not, Leaning into Life in Our Twenties, which will be released in April. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Drew as much as I do. Welcome to the Enneagram Journey. Well, thank you. It's a real honor to be here, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. You've been traveling a lot. A little bit, yes. Yeah, tell me about it. Well, see, I spent two weeks out of January in Guatemala with some of my students and some of my children, which was a real joy and honor. Uh, As you know, we have an adopted daughter from Guatemala, so an opportunity to to bring her home Mm -hmm. is always wonderful and always a blessing. Did the Enneagram help you on that trip? Oh, tremendously. Uh, You know, our students, uh, anytime you put, you know, a group of uh, college students into a pressure-filled environment such as an international trip in another culture, there's uh, many teachable moments and many opportunities to talk about personality, talk about motivation, uh, talk about stress. And so there, we had lots of good conversation about the Enneagram. That's it was great. great. That makes me happy. I yeah. uh, traveled quite a bit as a high school and college student, and I've often thought about how it might have helped me, particularly in relationships. Yeah. Traveling yeah. with other kids and stuff like that. Yeah, there, there were a number of opportunities because I, I walked them through in some of our meetings leading up to our trip, uh, some Enneagram material. And it was uh, really helpful to have them draw upon it mm-hmm. when they were stressed. Sure, so sure, when sure. they weren't doing well. Right. Helps them be better to one another. That's right. right. And I think they're gracious to one another. And uh, yeah, so it was a, w- a wonderful resource for us. Uh, in our two weeks there, for sure. Great. Well, um, I'm, you know, spending two years focusing on relationships. So I'd love to spend our time together talking about relationships in the Enneagram in your life. And I have a couple of questions I want to start with. But before I do that, I just want to tell you how much I enjoyed having you and Becca here. And how much I hope we get to do that again. I hope so too. It was a highlight of our 2017 for sure to be able to to come down and spend the weekend with you and and Joe and and learn together and talk about some really important things together and and it led to even though the focus of our weekend with you wasn't relationships per mm-hmm. se anytime you throw a married couple into that that type of intensive, you're going to talk about relationships. Sure. So sure. it was it was really good for us to talk about our marriage, talk about how we parent, all those things. Yeah, yeah. What I what I want to start with because you're a three on the enneagram, and you may not remember this exactly, so don't feel like you have to pinpoint something. You can just get close, right? Or you okay. can give me two or three examples instead of just one. But sure. for a lot of people, there's a moment a memorable moment when they know they found their number, like mm. they know they, they go, Oh, that's my number. Do you have that? Yeah. So I have it, uh, when I was exposed to the Enneagram, but then I also have it, you know, with hindsight 
well before I knew anything about the Enneagram. Yeah. So which would you like there? Both. Okay. So I was first exposed to the Enneagram back when we were in Vancouver, British Columbia. Okay. Working for a nonprofit. Our team underwent some training in the Enneagram. It's the first I'd ever heard about it. Okay. How old were you? Uh, let's see. This would have been roughly 10 years ago. So I was in my late 20s. Okay. Yeah, I'm 38 now. So about 28. And, you know, I remember it was some sort of test or assessment, which I now know it's <laughs> terrible. to be is terrible and suspicious. And it actually mistyped my wife, um, but not myself. Um, mm-hmm. I came out three and it, and it really did make sense. I felt like the description of the three at the time was uh, someone reading my mail uh-huh. or following me around uh-huh. uh, for most of my life. It really clicked then. You know, I now, with some hindsight, think, you know, uh, straight white male threes might be easier to type in a test yep. because we, we're in such a three culture. Right. That's and, very good insight. Yeah. So I think maybe that's why it was so easy uh, for, the, for the test to work and for it to click for me then. Yeah. But then once I had that knowledge, I could look back to some really key moments in my childhood and see, okay, that, that moment, the reason it was so powerful for me is mm-hmm. because that was really building my personality as a three, sure. without a doubt. Yeah. Um, I distinctly remember I moved in third grade. Well, from, that's a hard time to move. Yeah. Yeah. Very hard time. Very stressful. Um, I moved from suburban Minneapolis Mm -hmm. to rural uh, central Illinois. Mm. Mm. Big change, big change. And I remember my first day in school, uh, I went to what was a really great high achieving public school Mm -hmm. in uh, Twin City areas to what I then learned to be a really great uh, rural public school. Mm -hmm. But I was ahead just because of the education. And I remember uh, we did in math class, we did that around the world where you would, if you won, you got to keep going. (laughs) So if you got the answer more quickly from the flashcards, I believe it was multiplication, maybe division. I couldn't remember. Um, And I went around the world probably two or three times. Uh, And I felt invincible. (laughs) I felt that I could conquer anything. And that was on my first day. And, you know, it's, it's moments like that I can look back to and see those moments here and there really were three moments for me. Okay. In your relationships now, what has it taken to undo? Uh, some, some pain, <laughs> some tragedy, mm-hmm. and some humiliation for sure. Uh, marriage, uh, I felt, you know, my, my marriage to my wife, so tell everybody is, a little bit about Becca. Okay. Yes. My wife, Becca, we've been married for just about nearly 16 years now. And she's a really amazing, in my opinion, healthy one who has journeyed through a lot and has come through uh, with strength and poise and grace and beauty. But she grew up in Northwest Ohio. I, so we're mid, small town Midwestern kids, met in college dated through college, and then got married shortly after college. But our marriage uh, was a real test. It really called into question my threeness 
uh, even though I, I didn't have that language at the time, mm-hmm. but I really entered the marriage as something I could just achieve or yeah. conquer. A goal. Mm-hmm. It's a goal. I, we could have, and this is what marriage is supposed to be at this you know mm-hmm. time in life, this honeymoon phase. Uh, but you know, a few months before we got married, my wife lost her sister tragically. Mm. And so lost her matron of honor, mm. lost her best friend. Mm-hmm. And all of my expectations for what our marriage should be were just tossed out the window because we were dealing with some, you know, unspeakable grief. And, right. and, uh, and so marriage right off the bat was really hard for us. And I realized I can't fix this. Mm. I can't, I can't conquer her grief. I can't fix her pain. Mm -hmm. And that was incredibly humbling for me and painful for me Mm -hmm. because I felt helpless really, I think in many ways for the first time in my life, even though that's not, wasn't true, but then, you know, this whole idea of three shaping reality for themselves. Yeah. I felt that. I couldn't, I couldn't fix this. I couldn't make it better. And then a few years later, she lost her father to cancer and which felt like, you know, it, we got a, a one, two kind of sucker punch in the gut right. and I still couldn't, you know, and it only reinforced this notion that, Hey, I'm not in control here. I can't, I can't fix this or make it better. So instead of learning to really walk with mm-hmm. and support my wife. Um, I was really trying to, in my aggressive stance, trying to shape the reality for myself, trying to make it, make it the marriage that I thought it should be. Mm-hmm. And then, I, you know, we eventually had to come to a place through, you know, just a lot of conversations, some therapy, vigilant mm-hmm. together that, I needed to, I think, more accept the reality for what it was and and learn to grow into our marriage with my wife, given the reality of our situation. Mm -hmm. And that was a really painful lesson for me in my early 20s. And I didn't have the language of the Enneagram at the time, but um, it really helped now with the Enneagram as a resource and a tool for me to look back on that and realize Mm -hmm. that that's what was going on. Mm So right off the bat in our marriage, that's, it was a hard lesson to learn. Yeah. You know, a good question that I I like to use for threes in relationship is when things are not going as anticipated, Mm -hmm. what do you have to offer besides strategy? Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so did you discover what you have to offer besides strategy? Yes. Uh, I learned Eventually, I wish I had learned it sooner, the power of just presence, yep. pure presence, which really gets at, you know, my, as a three, my orientation towards time, really wanting to be future focused and really wanting to push towards the next thing that won't work, you know, when you're in the midst of grief yeah. and to just be present with my wife in her grief and also be honest and present with my own grief that, uh, that was an important an important lesson. I think also gaining language that was authentic uh, and didn't have to do with fixing mm-hmm. the problem. Right, right. Just to say, I'm sorry, or just to say, you know, I'm so sorry you're hurting. Yeah. That w- 
you know, it, with looking back, that seems so silly, you know, that mm-hmm. I had to learn. No, that doesn't seem silly to say me that. at all. But it was really important for me to learn that. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, I couldn't say the magic words to make it better. And I'm a guy who likes words. You know, I like to write. I like to speak. I like sure. to communicate. I like to teach. And I couldn't do any of that effectively in in the midst of our grief. Yeah, and you know, I, I would just I, I would just ask you to think about that. You probably could do all of that effectively. You just learn to measure effectiveness a different way. Exactly right. Like I, I had to learn that the best way to love and care for the people who are most important to me mm-hmm. was to, to utilize these things authentically. And that was by doing that, that was the most effective yeah. Yeah. way to be in relationship with them. That's with, good. With That's my, good. With good. my wife, with my in-laws. Uh, yeah. All right. What number relationship wise is most difficult for you and what number relationship wise is easiest. Oh, so difficult. You know, I find, uh, and some of my closest friends are this number, so which I, I consider providence because it's really helped me. Uh-huh. So I don't have this perspective about them, you know, if they're listening. Uh, but uh, nines are, especially unhealthy nines, are mm-hmm. really challenging for me. Why? As, as someone who really uh, values getting things done and moving about in the world and uh, tackling problems when a nine retreats, I I find that difficult for me at times because, um, you know, as you've taught, they have, you know, the lowest amount of energy on the Enneagram. Uh, I don't know that a three ever gets that. Uh, charge that they're the low, you know, have low energy. And so I I find it really difficult and easy to go to a place of judgment with uh, a nine who's not doing well, Uh because um, I just want, just get up. Yeah. You know, let's, let's, let's get going. Um, Let's start somewhere. So let me give you a clue about how to, how to work that. Okay, please do. All right. Uh, You know, nines go to three insecurity. Yeah. So when nines are kind of stuck, if you take them to the place or if you participate with them in the activity where they have the most security, they kind of find themselves again. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Well, and it really works. I'm really blessed because, you know, Joe's a nine, but he's in worship every week. Yeah. And when he is in worship, leading worship, he is just a three. That's the most comfortable place in the world for him other than with me. And it might be more comfortable than with me. I don't know, but (laughs) (laughs) it's certainly a huge part of his life. Yeah. And if he's in a, if he's in a space where he's kind of slow and unsure and not quite knowing how to step up, then Sunday always comes around. Yeah. After that, place of reclaiming where he feels so secure and so sure of himself, then we can kind of get moving. Yeah. So that might, that's a a tip. That's fascinating. You know, and the other thing I've I've wondered about too is, you know, as a three, 
insecurity, I go to six, which then allows me or I give myself permission. That's a very three way to say that. Right. But I, I'm more collaborative. I'm more loyal. I'm more of a team player. And so the nines in my life that I, you know, I rub shoulders with, I've really tried to be more intentional, not always successfully, but tried to be more intentional about trying to be moved towards, you know, my six Mm -hmm, security, mm -hmm. you know, arrow so that I'm not moving against them and frustrated with them, but rather working with them more collaboratively with those nines. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what number is the easiest? Oh, number or numbers, you know, I'm tempted. My initial response would be to say one because that's what my wife is. Uh, but you know, I also think, so one, certainly I think, you know, paired with a a good healthy one Mm -hmm. and a good healthy three, you can, you can get stuff, get all sorts of great things done. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that, um, that can really be meaningful, you know, and, uh, we're known among our close friends as as a couple, my wife and I, who can just get things done. Yeah. Because she sees that which needs to be improved, and I immediately say, "Well, I can I can do that. I can yeah. work towards that." Yeah. And so we we get in this kind of mode where she can spot how things can be better, mm-hmm. and I can help be about actually enacting the change there. But there's some pitfalls with that, too, I think, um, that we could also talk about later. Uh, I also think a really healthy eight is a lot of fun. There you go. Yeah, is a lot of fun to work with because there's somewhat of a united front in in our aggressive stanceness, Mm -hmm. but they also are not necessarily as held up by the image consciousness, you know, Mm -hmm. of a three. In some ways, when they're healthy, it seems like a really pure attempt and motivation to enact change, you know, in, in a really good way. And so I think a, a healthy three and a healthy eight, uh, is a lot of fun. So I think it would really help the people who listen to the podcast. If I ask you this question, there are a lot of people when they first hear their numbers taught who can't decide if they're a three or an eight. Yeah. What do you think that the significant differences are between threes and eights? Whew. Well, <laughs> I think, and, you know, I, I can speak, I hope most authentically from the perspective of a three, but if I'm being honest with myself, there, there is that, uh, those layers of image consciousness that are always present right. with a three. So not only do they need to get things done, not only do I need to get things done, but often I want to look good doing it. Mm. And I want to be impressed by, even if I'm, you know, I can feign humility about it um, when receiving praise, but I really want people to notice, if I'm being honest, mm-hmm. that I'm that I'm doing this mm-hmm. and I'm doing it well and I'm looking good doing it. And I think that's not necessarily the same place that an eight comes from. I think, you know, what was it? Sir Edmund Hillary conquered Everest. He said because it was there. <laughs> I think there yeah. is. Uh, there's that, that's more, uh, that sounds to me as a three, more of an eight kind of perspective. That, that's, that's good. There, that's gonna, really uh, helpful. Whereas if I'm being honest, Everest is there, I'm going to conquer it because I'm motivated to do it, but also I want people to notice that yeah. I'm doing it. Yeah. 
which of course is you know painful to admit, but it's I think it's true of threes that we want we want to be noticed and seen for the things that we do, yeah. which then gets us in this cycle of doing yeah. over being. I yeah. think. Yeah, for sure. Okay, um, what relationships are the most challenging for you? And by I don't mean people. I mean, are professional relationships the most challenging? Are relationships with at home with your wife and children the most challenging? Strangers the most challenging? That's a great question because I, you know, I'm I'm very much a three, but I'm also an introvert. Mm-hmm. So, which uh, I feel like conflict within myself often. I feel you know there's a significant part of me, probably my ego, is compelling me to go and reach out to other people and connect with them. Whereas maybe my source of energy is saying, no, you, you don't, you don't have it in the tank to do this. And so what's really challenging, for instance, I was just at a conference last week for work and those, um, I feel more dissonant with my own self in those spaces than probably pretty much anywhere Why? because I find myself working the room really successfully with people I don't know well. Mm-hmm. I am empty by the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I'm just toast. And I even know that while I'm in, you know, working the room mm-hmm. and, and doing, you know, the networky things that come with, you know, being at a professional conference. So that's a really challenging space for me would be colleagues who I don't interact with on a really regular basis. Um, that's, that's a draining space for me. I think Parenting has been incredibly challenging for me in my threeness because, in many ways, parenting to a three feels like the, the I'm sorry, the least productive thing you can do. <laughs> because, That's fascinating. What what a good insight. Because they are, you know, I have five kids too, and they're young. My oldest is 12 right now, and they they need a lot of me. And I love them dearly, and I can't imagine life without them. But I have to constantly let go of all of the to-do lists, the tasks, the things that I could get done when I'm with them. Uh-huh. That's been a journey for me of put, putting that aside, letting it go, in order to be fully present with them. Because I can think up things to accomplish in no time at all. It's really easy for me to access that. So I want to give you some uh, strokes. That part of me. I'm going to give you some strokes. Yeah, okay. I feel pretty good about everybody I've done a podcast with. And one of the things that makes me feel so good about them is that they're authentic. And it's not easy to be a three dad of five children and to say for whoever might listen... You know, it's it's hard for me to be present to them without thinking about all the things that I need to get done and all that. And I, I believe that only those kinds of conversations are going to move us forward collectively as parents or collectively awesome. as grandparents or collectively as privileged, white, straight males. You, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think children get it yes. when they're when they don't have us. And so for us to be able to explain that to other people and ultimately to them is a quite a gift, actually. So thank you so much for that honesty and that vulnerability because, you know, a, a lesser three 
would be uh, kind of talking about what a great daddy is most of the time. (laughs) Right? Oh, yeah. Well, I appreciate that. One of the things about having a lot of kids is that you, you know, you have your first kid and, you know, if, if they, you know, and our firstborn really functions like a third parent in many ways, he's really responsible. He's really kind. He's really helpful. And then you, you start to then think as a three, I've got this, you know, (laughs) I can, I'm good at this. Yeah. And then you start having other kids and you realize how little, <laughs> I mean, you have a lot to do with, with their nurturing and development for sure. But there's also at some point you're, you're doing the same thing and they're turning and they're, they're responding to you and they're turning out so different and you start to realize, okay, there's, I don't have as much to do with this as I think I do. Um, I can't, <laughs> I can't shape the reality of the perfect child, you know, sure. for all five of my kids, I can't do it. And then the other thing too, when you have five, you're, you know, you're, you're out, you're no longer playing man-to-man defense. You're playing at best a zone and not always all that successfully. So public spaces are great opportunities to learn from failure, you know, as a parent when when kids fall apart or there's tantrums and such a good place to learn that, that control is an illusion, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. Um, and I'm still learning that, especially, you know, with five kids, you have very different personalities and I find myself, you know, really being challenged by, you know, certain uh, children in my family more so than others right now. And it uh, really calls into that, calls into account my own threeness in terms of how much am I putting my stock in what it looks like to be the perfect dad, or can I conquer parenting with this child right now? Will I win? You know, that, uh, those are the things I'm having to check myself as a parent now. Um, so in that sense, it's been so good for me, you know, to parent a large family as a three, because it, it's forced me to not let my threeness run wild in many ways. Sure. Uh, um, in terms of, re- I'm sorry. No, I said, cause it can't. Yeah. Right. right. With five kids and that. In terms of relationships, how would you say that being a three is a gift and how is being a three a problem? And I kind of mean relationships across the board. And I I get the introvert-extrovert difference. So I'd kind of like to talk about other ways. So uh, I think one of the ways it's uh, a significant challenge for me, relationships across the spectrum, would be my um, repressed feeling, without a doubt. That's the thing I'm. I think I'm most conscious of and trying to work at is accessing my feeling intelligence in order to be more authentic in my relationships Mm -hmm. because, and, and you were very helpful in unlocking this for me, you know, when we were down at the Micah center last year and I I always struggle with, okay, I'm feeling dominant, Mm -hmm. but feeling repressed. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned is the way that that manifests itself in relationships is that I can read people generally pretty well initially, mm-hmm. but then I, I instantly turn and twist that into strategy mm-hmm. for how I want to engage them strategically, bypassing really important aspects of relationships, including empathy and compassion. <laughs> mm-hmm. And 
And so those are things that I have to really work on as a three is what does it mean to sit in others' feelings and feel empathy authentically mm -hmm. and not just mimic it, oh, which I, I so think good. I can do. I can mimic the empathy fairly effectively, except for the people who are closest to me, mm -hmm. that they see through it. And some of this is because, you know, we talk about the Enneagram and sure. we're open about things. So, so they can, in, in a really trusting place, challenge me on it, but... I think that's that's the greatest challenge I face with my relationships. Yeah. You know, I think there's a thing too about threes because people know that you have been aware of their feelings. People who who aren't Enneagram wise, who you're just in the world with, uh, maybe people at the university. People know that you know how they feel, right? Right. But they also then I think get very curious in the moments when it didn't seem to make a difference. Yeah. And it's hard yeah. if you don't know the Enneagram to explain to people that your care for them didn't go away. Your feelings waned. Yes. But your care didn't. Yeah. And that your go-to is how to fix the problem. Right. Yeah, because uh, there are times when I find myself uh, ready to move on you know, from a conversation mm -hmm. that could be very feeling and emotionally laden because I want to get to working towards the solution right. for them, which from my vantage point is the most caring thing I can do from my vantage point. But from theirs could feel like, oh, you're not listening to me anymore. You know, you're, you're you've moved on to something else. Mm -hmm. And, and so, um, what I've done, I'm also, uh, very internally, process oriented so I can have you know I mean, have a conversation with myself in my head so what I've learned to do is to more to adopt the practice of actually talking about <laughs> what I maybe think or envision could be a caring solution to mm -hmm. their current situation and and this is where that dissonance between feeling dominant and feeling mm -hmm. repressed comes in sometimes I realize that this brilliant idea I've cooked up in my head isn't all that helpful to them. <laughs> and I wouldn't have known it unless I really talked through with the person verbally working with their feelings mm -hmm. and sharing with them what I was thinking as opposed to just assuming I, I've got this. I know where they're at. I know what they need. So here's what what we're going to do. So that's been really helpful. If you, you and I, um, I hope we'll continue to be colleagues and do things together. And I hope so too, yeah. Um, as a three and a two, do you have twos that you're close to? Because the question I'm going to yeah. ask is, um, I think, very important. Okay. How much patience do you have as a three for my two verbal processing? Yeah. You know, I think if I could say to twos, it, it, when I'm trying to teach relationships, if I could say to twos, Aggressive numbers on the Enneagram have a certain amount of patience and grace for you to talk through in the way that you do it, the things that you're trying to make sense of or process. Yeah. And then they don't have any more. So there's a point where I feel like as a two, I'm asking aggressive numbers to give me something that yeah. they would happily give me if they had it, but they don't have it. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question because uh, early on in my career, I had zero capacity. So I work in a field, you know, called student development or student life, 
which is, you know, we work in the co-curricular spaces outside of the classroom on college campuses. That is a field that tends to attract a lot of helpers. So I think there's, there's a lot of twos that enter into that, that realm. And so when I started working in, you know, student development here at Taylor University, uh, I was not prepared for how many twos I would be surrounded with, mm-hmm. or more generally, how many verbal processors I would be surrounded with. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't handle it real well at the beginnings. I saw, just to be honest, a lot of it is wasteful. Sure, sure. Why do we need to sh- share, spend so much time talking about our feelings mm-hmm. on this issue? That's how I viewed it. Now, you know, in over time, and you know, now that I've got some years in this field, I've really learned a that better strategy, yeah, better solutions, and more collaboration and cohesion comes from a little time and space to let an idea, a concept, uh, an issue simmer through. Mm-hmm processing and that it's a significant way that not only I can value others. So the twos in the room uh, that I can hear them and honor them and not just wait for them to finish, Mm -hmm. you know, speaking, but actually listen to them. And, and the other thing that it has helped me do is if, if I'm, you know, in a healthy place and asking myself, how do I feel? Mm -hmm. Because they're, they're very honest with their feelings Mm -hmm. Twos are very honest with their feelings about something. I'm not so much. And so I I need to use those opportunities as a space to say, how do I actually feel about this as opposed to bypassing that? So it's, it's continual area of growth for me as a three, not only to make space, but be hospitable to the verbal processing Mm -hmm. that others, you know, really need and embark on. And so I would just say I'm much better at it than I used to be. <laughs> I don't know that I'm all, I'm really great at it yet, yeah. um, but I'm much better at it than I used to be. All right. So let's talk about what you want twos to know about you. Like if, if you could say to that a group of students, I'm working really hard to listen to you kind of walk through this and think through it verbally. And if, if you could meet me partway, here's what would be helpful to me. I think what would be helpful, it would be an understanding that at some point, if I'm ready to move on to maybe more practical solutions mm-hmm. to something, that is should be considered a response to the feelings that you've expressed, not a silencing of them. I think I want to talk about that for a minute because I think that's going to be very helpful to lots of folks. I think one of the things I've learned about myself is when I'm afraid that your solution, not yours specifically, but the other person's solution to what I'm trying to explain, when I'm afraid that that could cost me relationally, Mm. I keep talking. Okay. And I'm watching myself do that with aggressive numbers. Really? So the number on the Enneagram that least wants to hear me talk in, in a one-to-one, they just want me to say, this is how I feel. This is what we need. And I, 
when I think, oh, they have a solution and they haven't thought about how it's going to affect everybody and they're going to want me to do it and my relationship with them is going to be compromised if I don't, then I find in self-observation that I just keep talking. Just keep talking. And it just gets worse. And then when I keep talking, what happens is aggressive numbers offer me yet another solution. But this is the thing that's important, I think. As I keep talking, the solutions that aggressive numbers, three, sevens, and eights, the solutions that they offer me get farther and farther and farther from feeling. Yeah. And so if twos could learn that it's to everybody's advantage for them to get on board early with a potential solution as opposed to continuing all of this um, imaginary what-if stuff. Yeah. I think it could be very helpful. Yeah. When you describe it that way, I can see the vicious cycle, you know, of of a two, you may be continuing to process in many ways to delay what they may feel is a solution that, you know, can be painful to them. And then, and the three then would get more and more frustrated. Right. 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 <laughs> it looks like I thought you wanted an answer, right? Get to more shorter void of feeling solutions, right. which then I think with dis- more and more distance becomes less about solving the problem more just about ending the conversation. I would think for you. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And which then is a solution for no one. Right. Um, well, maybe it's, it's a, it's a, <laughs> It's a way for twos to learn for sure. Ones, twos, and sixes, actually. Not just twos, but ones, twos, and sixes tend to overtalk. So yeah. in, in relationships, when you are presented with something uh, from a two or a one or a six, and you have a solution, I, I think it would be to your advantage to help them bring up thinking by saying, mm-hmm. I have two things for you to think about, and we'll circle back to this. And that way, because they're re- yeah. thinking repressed, right? You're feeling repressed, right. too. You know what that feels like. Yeah. Well, to be thinking repressed means that when you present me with an option I haven't considered, I just keep on feeling more and more and more until you say, why don't you think about this? Or what do you think about this? Which changes the, the, verb, the verbiage of the conversation. Yeah. I think that's tremendously insightful. Definitely. You know, one of the things that I, that I struggle with is I, it's easy for me to go to the space to help those that are thinking repressed think productively. Yeah. I struggle with the line between helping unlock their own productive thinking mm-hmm. and just doing it for them. That's, yeah. that's a challenge, I think, for, for a three um, when they're with, you know, those that are thinking repressed is, uh, I think it's easy for us. I can just think through this for you. Sure. And, um, you know, for a guy like me, then that can very easily get into, you know, mansplaining and all these other, um, unhealthy habits, uh, that can damage relationships. And, uh, and so that's something I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about with those that are in my life that are thinking repressed. How do I help empower, or just help them discover their own mm-hmm. ability to think productively as opposed to just doing it for them, which it, to a three feels like a shortcut. You right. know, it's much easier to just do it myself 
even if it's not the correct way you sure. know, to think. Um, I, th- I think we, we default to that setting sometimes. So here's my answer. I don't believe that you can teach anything better to ones, twos, and sixes by making a statement right. than you can by asking a question. Yeah. And then always leave the door up for follow open for follow-up questions. So anytime aggressive numbers are with dependent numbers, it's a really great thing to say, well, what do you think about this? Well, I, I don't know. That, that might not work. Well, why wouldn't it work? You can, you can lead somebody to bring up productive thinking with asking thinking questions. Yeah. So let's shift to people who are doing repress. Hmm. What does that do for you? <laughs> I think for those that are doing repressed, um, I so think it, just it let me provides... let everybody know we're talking about four, five, yeah. nine. Four, fives, and nines, right. yes. I think it provides an opportunity for aggressive numbers to just step in and do it for them, mm-hmm. uh, which is not always the, the healthier right approach because uh, I think often then aggressive numbers can be frustrated by the fact that fours, fives, and nines didn't step up maybe mm-hmm. to do the thing that they sh- that a three, for instance, thinks they should do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a four, five, and nine may feel slighted for the fact that you didn't give me the chance or, you know, you just did it and are, you know, a little condescending along the way. So what I I think what I've learned and I'm still learning as a three with fours, fives and nines is how do I help create and shape environments in which I don't step in and take control, but wait and see what they can do and come up with. So is or that the same as my clear language? The deck. Clear the deck. Oh, is that the same as my language when I say I'm going to set the table? I'm going to set the table for uh, yeah. this. Yeah. So are we talking about the same yeah. thing? Absolutely. I think so. You know, fours, fives, and nines can often uh, busy themselves, as, as you've taught, with um, maybe uh, many things that, uh, not one of which is the thing they should be doing, okay. right? Okay. And so maybe I, my ability to get things done can help attend to the things that they want to busy themselves with mm-hmm. to clear the deck. That's what I was getting at with clear the deck so that the thing right in front of them is, is the very thing that they need to and should be doing. Sure. How do you feel about, uh, you know, Eugene Peterson says that our greatest act of hospitality is telling our story. Now I'm not talking about, you know, your salvation story or your, when you met Jesus story, although I think those are valuable stories. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about that moment when you um, build relationships by sharing stories. Because I don't don't think anything is a better cornerstone for building than that act of hospitality. Yeah. So how does it make you feel to tell a story about yourself? Now, be sure you get all those words. How does it make you feel to tell a story about yourself? Mm, I feel I feel conflicted about telling stories about myself. I feel conflicted because I feel the urge to want to embellish or polish so that I look better to others or to shy away from the times in which I've you know failed or come short. 
And yet I know that authentic relationships for me are those are, are those relationships in which the other person knows me for who I truly am and who, you know, who I am as a human being, not just a human doing. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, right. so this gets to the whole persona, you know, the chameleon shapeshifter elements of the three. Uh-huh. I feel those very strongly when I'm in relationships with others, when I'm, when I'm building or developing, especially in initially relationships with others. Because I feel that tension, that war within myself of wanting to impress them and yet wanting to be known. <laughs> and, and wanting to be known is different than wanting them to be impressed by sure. my persona, right? And I also think in this, you know, I don't know if this gets into subtypes or not, but I, I do, I'm more comfortable with them being impressed by me without me having to say anything. <laughs> So yeah. I, I think I want that more than me having to tell that tell others or convince other people that I'm impressive. I just want them to come to that conclusion, sure. if I'm honest, on, sure. on their own. What do you think is the relationship cost of threes embellishing? I think initially you see a lot of quick returns. Oh. But eventually people see through it. If they stick around long enough, or I also I also think a lot I a lot of threes will bail on a relationship when it starts to get truthful or honest because they don't want those embellishments to be, come to light, right, and to be known as embellishments. So I think it's easy, and this is where we get into a lot of threes using can use relationships mm-hmm. to their strategic advantage. I think that's what's happening is often they can threes we can embellish our own advantage and then when that ceases to become an advantage Mm -hmm. I think it's easy for us to move on to someone else who's willing to listen to it so I think the cost eventually in in terms of true authentic relationships is really high um, because you become more of a relational tourist than that's good language someone who is in true authentic relationship with another person how many uh true, authentic relationships outside of Becca and the children do you think you can manage? That's another, uh, that's another thing that I, you know, as I was thinking about, you know, my threeness in relationships, I thought about this because I, I often feel that as a three, I have more than I can truly manage, authentically manage right now. And some of that is I'm in a very small, tight knit community, Mm -hmm. uh, which you know at we the don't university. have yeah yeah at Taylor University yeah. so we we uh we're in this small town in which we work together we live near each other we worship together mm-hmm. and so there's just a the dimensions of my life are high you know there's a lot of overlap mm-hmm. which then um is good for me as a three because I can't yeah you know, I can't truncate my life I my work self has to look a lot like my church self and my home self because I can't fool people forever. We have a small group uh, that we've been meeting together for probably seven or eight years. Yeah, that's um, a lifesaver right there. Yeah, small groups couples, are a lifesaver, and and it's so good for me because they know me completely. Mm-hmm. You know, they I can't fool them, and you know. 
I'm at a point with them where I don't even necessarily want to bring up accomplishments verbally to them because I know it, it doesn't matter, you mm-hmm. know, and that's really good for me. And it also creates a lot of spaces for friendships and just time with friends that is just being together, which is healthy for me as a three. Because I think it would be easy for me not to pursue relationships if they didn't help me achieve goals, right? Or didn't help me. That's so good of you to be so honest about that. So they're really good for me because I've got, you know, there's a wide variety of Enneagram types in our group. And, and there are some that really play that role of pressing into spending a lot more time together than I otherwise would spend, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I just want to be clear with everybody. That's not just about the fact that you're an introvert. That's also threeness. Three's yeah. just, yeah. I, threes need a lot of space. I used to blame, if you will, maybe that's the right way, you know, my introversion for yeah. that, but I, I'm learning it's, is there's my threeness plays a lot into the amount of time I'm willing to put into relationships. Mm-hmm. I think I, I approach relationships much healthier when I'm willing to accept and and work on the pitfalls that my threeness brings when it comes to relationships, not just introversion. Uh, you know, I, I'm low energy after being with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. That's a shortcut for me, I think. What do you wish somebody had told you about being a three? Some older three, some old wise three, (laughs) Uh, like Parker Palmer. Parker Palmer's a three. So I think what would be helpful for me, if I can imagine Parker Palmer sitting, you know, next to you there, which is a fun image. Uh, It's pretty fun for me too. (laughs) (laughs) It's for him to say, you know, uh, you are a human being, not a human doing. And I would have actually listened to it because he would have self-disclosed himself to me as a three. So go. I think that would have been really important to me. Um, cause I think I, I would, you know, my younger self would have been very quick to discard or dismiss a statement like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I could very easily or easily or quickly see, Hey, we're different personalities here. You know, we're just wired differently yeah. here. But for someone like Parker Palmer, who, to be honest, I wouldn't have known, you know, that he was a three without him coming to that conclusion, because I think he's gotten to a point where he is really existing far more in his true self than I was, you know, in my early 20s, for instance. Um, And so I would have had trouble identifying with him as a fellow three. Mm-hmm. So I think that would have been helpful. Uh, the other thing would be things will happen in their due time. That's a, That's been an important lesson for me because I want to just make things happen. Mm-hmm. I want to push and strive. And I, I've spent a lot of time and energy in, in uh, I would imagine, some relational equity trying to push things to fruition as opposed to just you know, you referenced Eugene Peterson, his yeah. image of a long obedience in the same direction yeah, yeah. is really powerful for a three. Yes, it is. Um, because I want to just sprint up the mountain mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. as opposed to faithfully, incrementally, step by step, just uh, trot along the path and let things come as they come. Does that make sense? It makes perfect it, sense. Okay. 
So uh, let me tell you where we are. It's time for me to wrap up, but I want to tell you a few things. And the first thing I want to tell you is you've got relationship equity with me. So well, if, thank yeah, you. I, that means that means the world. I'm very thankful for your awareness of the high side and the low side of your number and your willingness to share that. You know, this is easy. What what you and I are doing is easy for other numbers to be as forthcoming as you have been. Some other numbers. Easier for some than others. Sure, sure. It's very difficult for a three to come on a podcast to talk for an hour and be forthcoming about what it's really like to be a three. Yeah. Yeah. And you've done an exceptional job. Well, thank you. Thank you. I hope so. And um, I'm going to look forward to whenever I get to see you and you and Becca. Yes. And uh, I wouldn't mind meeting those kids at some point. Uh, that would be great. That would be really great. And I know that our paths will cross again. I've introduced some friends of mine to you from other universities that I think will be a gift for them and for you. But yeah. I... I don't know how to over, I, I, I don't know how to adequately say I knew you were a great guy. This podcast has proven to me that you're a thoughtful, great guy who should be working with college kids. Oh. And they are blessed to have you. Well, thank you. That's deeply affirming. And I have to say, in large part, uh I think that's true, if it, if it is true, uh, which I hope it is, due to your work and your teaching. So it's been deeply instrumental. Uh, to my ability to get to a point where I can talk about my threeness more honestly and authentically, though as painful as it is to do so. It's just uh, the best gift we have to offer people. Really. Yeah. Really. Yeah. I, and I'm learning that as a three, you yeah. know, it is the best gift. And because um, it does reframe success and failure, it reframes all sorts of things in really healthy ways as opposed to my own, you know, reframing. Sure. That I'm, to do sure will you give becca a hug for me and you guys come see me when you can all right thank you so much thank you so much drew bye-bye bye the enneagram journey podcast is produced by life in the trinity ministry music is provided by solve lighthouse professional photography is courtesy of courtney perry We invite you to visit theenneagramjourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.